Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me this week are my co-hosts Andy. What up? Grace. Ah, uh, the ant is back! <laughs> <laughs> I'm recording in bed. Seeing ants is horrifying! <laughs> I'm sorry, I just can't compose myself. Okay. Whew. Neither can this ant. <laughs> Damn it, Grace. I'm keeping Whew. it all. Okay. Keep going. And our special guest, Ari. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Ari, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, sure. How's it going? I am Ari Silvera or Abe Silvera on Twitter. I am one of the four hosts of Angel 2, a feminist Star Trek podcast based here in Scotland. It's it's always very hard to introduce myself because I've lived in a number of different countries. <laughs> but basically, <laughs> the TLDR of it is, I'm from Argentina, grew up there, and then I lived in Ireland for like a decade, and then I've been living in Scotland for the last five or six years. Yeah, I am a translator, subtitler, sociologist, and admin assistant, i.e. I'm a millennial. And... <laughs> Yeah, and I've been kind of involved with, like, Trek fandom since about 96, probably. And I was part of the official Argentinian fan club, which was called Starbase Tango. Like, part of it. I was not in any way involved in founding it or anything. I was too young. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was in another fan club. And yeah, and then I've, I've just been, like, a massive fan of Trek uh, for that long. And then um a while ago, me and some, some friends of, of mine, like, we decided to do a podcast because, yeah, because we felt like... Because there's you guys and there's a, there's a few other, but we felt that there wasn't, there, there really definitely need to be more uh, women-led Star Trek podcasts. It's very weird that there aren't, considering how crucial women have been to Star Trek fandom and the history mm -hmm. of the shows. Yeah. And, and yeah, we just had a lot to say because the four of us come from like very different experiences. Like me and Fiona are very like hardcore long-term fans. Fiona's actually met a lot of the cast of a lot of different shows. MJ's very new to it and Sophie's kind of in the middle. So yeah, so it was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I'm rambling now a bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do here <laughs> but just to, but just to let everyone know um my accent uh always fluctuates and that's not something that i have like full conscious control over mm -hmm. so i might some things that i say might sound american some things that i say might sound very scottish or very irish or just whatever anything in the middle a lot of people are like oh your accent sounds fake but it's literally because i just speak it comes out the way the way it comes out you know what I, mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a cute accent oh thanks that's cool. I, I like the idea of fan clubs all over the world. I love that yeah. about Star Trek. Like thinking about fan club in Argentina. That's cool. Yeah, it was pretty all right. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a pretty unique experience in getting to experience fandom in not only multiple countries, but multiple continents. And languages. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. All right. So our main topic today, we are going to be discussing original series episode from Season 3, Episode 16, The Mark of Gideon. You might be asking yourself, what? Why? Because this is not a great episode. However, it does give us a lot to discuss. But before we get there, we have our typical housekeeping to do. Our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as $1 per month and get awesome rewards. From thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries. Recently, we watched The Magics of Megas 2. Oh my god. Grace had never seen it before, so oh you can imagine that. My god. <laughs> and if you'd like to join us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash women at warp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or, or a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you get your podcasts. Additionally, conventions coming up, we have Star Trek Las Vegas, where yeah. Grace and I are planning to be. I'm planning to be at Dragon Con, and then I'm also hoping to be at Northeast TrekCon in October. So if you're in the area of any of those conventions or planning to attend, let us know. Stop by. Say hi. Hopefully we'll get some meetups scheduled. And that's all I got. Cool. So who would like to give us a quick summary of The Mark of Gideon? I want to hear how Grace breaks this one down. Let me set the scene for you. It's another one of those, you know, we're going to beam down to the planet. Oh, we got to solve this planet's thing or whatever. And, you know, Kirk <laughs> is like, I'm going to personally beam down because these people are super anal retentive about who's allowed to visit their planet. Blah, 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 blah. Apparently they're super health 
freaky conscious and don't like people with outside germs coming in. So Kirk gets beamed down, but he ends up back on the Enterprise, except there's nobody there. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Credits. Which is not only odd for him, but also, I imagine, really rough for all of the extras. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Kirk is all alone on this empty version of the Enterprise until he runs into this lady who's, like, super jazzed to be on this big, empty ship. And I love that the first thing we see of her is pretty much a shot of her from the back. So it's her alligator granny panties. <laughs> Which haunt you for the entire episode, I tell you. Um, so anyway, what he gets from her is that apparently the planet that he was supposed to beam down to is super overpopulated to like the point where you are constantly in rush hour traffic, but with people. So Kirk's got to figure out how did he get here and how does this relate to this planet Gideon? While the people on the actual Enterprise are just figuring out what's up with Kirk? Where did he go? Very much. Very yeah. much. And that's what they pay me to do on this show. <laughs> <laughs> this is what the kind of analysis your Patreon dollars support. Okay, so <laughs> give us money. I hate to say it, but I think these are the voyages might have you beat. Because <laughs> their, their one sentence synopsis of this episode is, Alien Beauty seeks to use Captain Kirk to bring death to millions of people. <laughs> that misleading on multiple levels. <laughs> That's amazing. It's not inaccurate. (laughs) The thing that makes me laugh about that is it's kind of like, you know how when they're like, explain a TV show badly? Uh That's exactly what that is. Like, that should be hashtag explain a Star Trek episode badly. Should we issue a challenge to our listeners to explain this episode better? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But the thing is, is like, it's not technically inaccurate, but that's all... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's what I love about those. The reveal that we get through the episode is that the the woman, Odana, is the daughter of the head of the planet, and they're trying to get her infected with a disease that Kirk once had so that she can rejoin the population and infect other people and kind of, you know, thin the herd, as it were, because their overpopulation is so bad. It's a gangbusters plan. It's really rational. It makes a <laughs> lot of sense. And uh, it's not immoral at all, I think. Mm-mm. Now, I just wanted to, to point out when you were saying that, you know, the extras were bummed out by the empty ship. Like, my the, my first my first thought there was like, I mean, yeah, yeah, they might not get paid, but at the same time, they don't have to be around William Shatner. And that had to be <laughs> a wonderful experience for them. They don't have to be around William Shatner and they don't have to be pretending not to stare at the alligator granny panties <laughs> also we have to say that probably the set designers were pretty stoked to take a week off yeah yeah i mean third season budgets and i mean as as keith decandio put it on a tour.com rewatch only in the budget raised third season of star trek could you have an episode about the dangers of overpopulation in which the primary visual is a bunch of empty corridors <laughs> It's true. The thing is, they built a spare model of the Enterprise to trick Kirk into thinking he'd been beamed back on. It's like, if you're at such a loss for space, how do you have room to build a freaking Enterprise? (laughs) Build a high-rise. Are people going to move in there afterwards? (laughs) I hope so. Is it going to be social housing or, (laughs) you know, hospital? I really would love to see, like, their their planning board for this. (laughs) So, like, picture their big whiteboard and they're like, Okay, overpopulation. Clearly, we gotta kill some people. And then they're like, step one, make a fake enterprise. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. And it's like, where is this coming from? What kind of steps did they come up with? (laughs) The plot makes zero sense in that way because where'd you put all those displaced people? Why is this even necessary? to trick him into thinking he's on his spaceship, but it's empty. My very favorite thing about this episode, though, is the only visual proof we get that the planet is, in fact, overpopulated is this recurring (laughs) just window out into a group of the same, like, ten people just bumping into each other. (laughs) Like, walking in a circle. (laughs) And I think that would make for a great group cosplay. (laughs) That would be amazing. (laughs) I just love that, okay, so one of the first thing that Kirk does is make out with the, the 
mysterious woman. Because, I mean, who wouldn't just make out with the mysterious woman? Mm-hmm. And while he's making out with her, it's like, do, do, do. And then there's just all these people staring at them. All the, like, <laughs> floating faces? It's yeah, amazing. yeah, that's super yeah. creepy. I will give this episode that. And it does totally remind me of the Twilight Zone episode where the astronaut realizes he's been put in an alien zoo and the curtains just part and there's all these aliens standing there just staring at him. I want to point out that that moment where they cut to the people watching them kiss <laughs> was specifically requested by Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> uh, why am I not surprised by that? Oh my gosh, this planet is full of pervs. His his note to the editor, as printed again in These Are the Voyages, which is my favorite book, <laughs> says, On Kirk and the girl's kiss, the girl, on the Enterprise, don't let Kirk and the girl break and exit. Instead, cut to screen and people watching. <laughs> Later on, we also get to see that the whole time her dad has been watching her seduce Kirk. Oh, that's mm-hmm. fun. That's an extra layer of creep. <laughs> Well, and it was Bob Justman whose idea it was that, like, well, maybe instead of disease, maybe Kirk should sleep with Odana and oh! they can breed in imperfections, defects into the population that will cause an earlier death. Like, That's a really dumb are idea. Are you kidding me? That's You're going to solve overpopulation with more babies? Is it a worse idea than what the Gideons did, or...? Let's be real, any of the ideas are pretty terrible here. Before we even go into that, can we just discuss that this isn't even what overpopulation is? Yes. (laughs) See, that's the thing, because the thing that surprised me about this episode, I literally had never seen it until I sat down to watch it today. Same here, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I don't always, I'm not always, like, very okay with, like, the original series. But the, what surprised me about the episode is that it's overpopulation is just like I thought it was going to be an episode about overpopulation, but actually overpopulation really felt like it was just like the 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 bad consequence of the other stuff that the episode is exploring, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And well, the other thing that surprised me about the episode, but it shouldn't surprise me, was that literally we spent like the first half of the episode. It's all like. Ooh, it's a mystery. What's happening? I don't know. Uh-huh. I like that Mario is describing this episode. Oh, yeah. oh sorry. No, oh, okay. Oh, I have this thing. It's like a running gag with MJ, who is in, the, in Angel 2, and also my housemate. We, we watched Discovery together, and I wasn't a big fan of it. And we, I, we have this like running gag where like the writing room of Discovery, I don't know if anyone will get this reference, but the writing room of Discovery is basically one of the rubies from Steven Universe, oh, who is my called God. Navy. <laughs> You know, the one that speaks on like this. And so it's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe we'll make make Kirk fall in love and kiss the pretty lady. Navy you know? has been writing Star Trek all along. All along. Because oh, she's great. evil. That would explain why they like toying with our emotions so much, wouldn't it? I know. But that was, but that, that's like kind of like the running joke that we have. So that's why I'm like, I'm like oh, I don't know. Maybe Kirk fall in, <laughs> falls in love. Maybe he falls in love this week. Again. <laughs> It's a Tuesday, so it's time for Kirk to meet the love of his life. And then leave her 50 minutes later. After giving her mono. Oh, no! <laughs> that would have been my favorite twist of the episode if they'd been like, you're you're giving her vegan meningitis, or whatever the hell it's called. And he's like, I gave her mono. It's a thing that happens when you make out with too many people sometimes. I was disappointed that the budget to the, of the episode didn't stretch to having... That thing that they do in the original series sometimes when like there's like a romantic scene and then suddenly both characters are shot in soft focus. <laughs> <laughs> we get some brief shot bo- uh, soft focus, but I think that's just Vaseline on the lens. <laughs> so oh, God. they have a budget with their soft focus. So really, in real life, coming back to things. Sue's sociological corner. <laughs> Ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba. Overpopulation is not overcrowding. It's not like living in Times Square, which is my nightmare. Overpopulation (laughs) is when a population can't be maintained with the resources in an environment. Mm -hmm. So like running out of food or, I mean, I guess technically space, but you're going to run out of food way before you run out of space because you need the space to create the food. They've got replicators, but they don't have multi-story buildings on this planet, I guess. Right, I guess. But they never address resources Mm -hmm. on Gideon. 
apparently they did in, in earlier drafts of the, the script. There were scenes that were written in about like Gideons who were stealing food and how, what a crime it was and how punished they were going to be because of the limited resources. And that could have actually, in my opinion, added to this, uh, danger of overpopulation, but they don't mention it at all. It's just people crowded around. But while I'm talking about the episode, I do want to mention that this was written by Stanley Adams or co-written by Stanley Adams, who played Cyrano Jones in The Trouble with Tribbles yeah. and came about because he was chatting with Gene Roddenberry about his pet topic of overpopulation. So just kind of interesting how that came about, I think. Yeah. Another thing I want to point out about, like, popular idea of overpopulation is that it's super racialized. Oh, mm. yeah. Yep. So, like, when we hear people talking about overpopulation in, like, today's society, it's almost always directed towards non-white people. So, like, you, right now, there's all these articles that keep I keep seeing on my timeline that are like, Oh no, the American millennials are not having enough children because our birth rate is plummeting and everyone is sad about that. But like, if you start talking to a lot of super racist people, you'll notice that overpopulation is a well that they keep going back to about when we're talking, especially about, say, Africa. And mm-hmm. so I, I, there are a lot of issues with the concept of overpopulation to begin with because it's not that we have we don't have enough resources on planet Earth for everybody. It's that those resources are all concentrated in the hands of a handful of people, really. Mm-hmm. And so really the problem is not our resources, it's our resource management. So I just want to throw that out there as we're talking about overpopulation as a concept, is that notice who is worried about overpopulation and what population they're worried about I guess, getting too large. And you'll always notice some extremely gross racial aspects to it. Oh, yeah. And it's weird how often that conversation will go to in, like, really cynical people will turn to the, you know what we need? We need, a, like, a, a plague to wipe out all the poor or dumb people or something. Or even, like, when Katrina happened when I in Chicago, one of the members of the Chicago Tribune board wrote a piece about how Katrina was actually good for New Orleans because it helped them rebuild the city and blah blah blah. Oh my god that's so grim. Yes absolutely and she got roasted for it obviously because what? Hopefully literally Yeah well she basically (laughs) was saying that it's Chicago needs a Katrina is essentially what she was saying What is wrong with her? Yeah absolutely and the undertone of that is that we need to wipe away the poor and mostly people of color, let's be honest here, people, and then we can gentrify what's left, is essentially the argument there. She made it very poorly. I mean, it's super Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Why don't you just go ahead and die and decrease the surplus population? Yeah. But they also want the labor, so oh no, what do they do? We can't run sweatshops without people to sweat. (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, this yeah. is why whenever overpopulation as a, even a concept comes up, I start to cringe even before the conversation happens because overpopulation is not a problem that we face. And it is such a loaded term in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, and that's, you know, the thing the thing with that, you know, with, with these, these very racialized ideas of overpopulation. See, I used to, I used to be very, I used to be much more shall we say, delicate about talking about the fact that I'm Jewish and my family survived the Holocaust. But with the rise of like the alt-right and neo-Nazis and stuff, I feel like I don't really have to be quiet anymore. And so like when somebody comes up with something like that IRL, I'm like, that is literally the Nazis. You've literally yeah. supported a Nazi policy. Well done. Because I because gloves are off now. You know what I mean? It's not like, yeah. why would I not say it? You know, it's like, yeah, you oh, oh you know, I wish all these two people would die. And it's like, Cool. That's eugenics. Adolf. Thank you. Thank you, Eichmann. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's one of those things that when concepts like this come up, we have to push back on it. 
not just as a logistical problem, but as a moral problem. Like, people often try and bring it up as, like, oh, I'm just trying to solve problems rationally, but no, you're not. <laughs> so rational. Nah. Oh, so, okay. I don't know. We could go on a tangent about what is considered logical and what isn't and how mm. often morality gets stripped from that conversation. But we're trying to talk about Mark of Gideon, so let's try and... <laughs> I mean, we can talk about morality and eth ethics and those being stripped from the conversation in our next topic to talk about in this episode, which is birth control. Yeah. Absolutely. Before <laughs> seeing this episode, I genuinely knew it as, oh yeah, the one where Kirk offers condoms to some aliens. <laughs> so there's there's a gif of that scene yeah. that I tweet every now and then or with just like the, the second half of Kirk's little speech where he's saying, you know, you could teach people about ways to safely prevent conception. And literally every time I send that out, people come back at me and they're like, I honestly thought this was a swear trek gif. Yeah. This is real. Yeah. Like it, it is kind of astounding that Kirk would have that kind of line, you know, in 1968. I mean, it's pre-Roe Ro v. Wade. Yeah. yeah. So it really was very, I mean, I feel like not birth control so much, although reproductive rights in general, like kind of going hand in hand here, but I feel like this would be something that would be surprising to have on TV now in some ways. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Because yep. we're having such a backlash against reproductive rights at this exact moment in time. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's really interesting to me that he's like, guys. There is a solution to your problem. It doesn't involve, you know, culling the herd. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> culling the herd. He does, unfortunately, also use, the Kirk being he, also use the, the word sterilization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, a loaded but, like, term. I, I also, I read, an, I guess, an argument or an explanation from somebody that, like, you know, 50 years ago didn't mean, like, the same thing. And implied that, like, really, Kirk was talking about the pill, right? Because it's a chemical means to contraception. And when he's talking about devices to prevent conception, he was talking about condoms. Yeah, see, when it, the sterilization line, as loaded as it is, I was thinking he meant, like, the sex. That's what I thought, too. Mm. Like, Yeah. I would like to believe that. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I choose to interpret it. It's a more comfortable thing to believe. Yeah. I mean, I, I very much doubt he was like, sterilize your population. But, I mean, who can, who can tell now, like, really what he meant? Or offer free vasectomies. <laughs> the Federation will provide whatever you need. Okay, so, now that you mentioned the Federation, this reminds me, like, the biggest, in my, in my, in my opinion, issue with the episode, in terms of, like, the, the, in, its internal logic. I mean, we know that they are... They are xenophobic, which already mm -hmm. raises a very big question about why do you want them in the Federation? Yeah. Why do they want to join the Federation? Yeah. And the thing is, like, the the whole thing is, like, they're isolationists because they know that any diseases will, like, break their, like, that, like, balance that they have where they're, like, really long-lived and stuff. But even there are ways of attaining, like, the thing is, right, there is a solution to their problem without even changing their philosophy, if you want. Which is, Star Starfleet goes with a fleet of ships and moves them to unpopulated planets? Yeah. There are a lot of solutions that they just zoom right past to making yeah. their, their cool ship. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, okay, but have you considered making a giant replica of the <laughs> Enterprise? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's probably going to take up a lot of valuable, valuable space, but have you considered it? <laughs> it's like so it's it, it's like they were they were they were like locked in a room for like three days sweating eating snacks and like trying to figure out how the hell to solve this problem that has that has destroyed their society for generations and and just like like one of them offered the like fake enterprise and let's get kirk he has that like vegan virus and whatever and then they were like no john that is ridiculous but how do they know that like why do they have access to kirk's medical records they just read his Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> Got the vegan conjunctivitis today. <laughs> Did you say vegan conjunctivitis? I don't know. I can't remember what it was called. It's when you've got tofu breath. 
they just assume with his reputation that he has some kind of STD. Right? It's a fair assumption. Yeah. But I just oh. feel like like the guy that proposed the fake enterprise idea, like they were like, no, that is that is pie in this guy, that's ridiculous. And then like at the, after the fifth day of like not finding a solution, they were like, fine, John, we'll do your ridiculous <laughs> enterprise idea. We're gonna evacuate a neighborhood and build a fake constitution class, <laughs> the top of the line of Starfleet, John, just because you gave me the idea. I am so tired, John. I haven't seen my family in weeks, and I see them all the time. I do want to say, though, that the thing that I, because the first time I saw this episode, I thought it was mind-numbingly silly. And it and it is. Like, this this solution they've come up with is so irrational, it's so hilarious. But the thing that I do like about some of the themes in this episode is kind of the idea of how policy is made. Mm-hmm. And, and you kind of see this, too, with, with Spock when he's complaining about the diplomacy and the bureaucracy of Starfleet and the Federation and like his frustration with we have this problem, we have the tools to solve this problem, mm-hmm. but you won't let me solve this problem because of these arbitrary rules that you've imposed on me. And that kind of goes throughout the whole episode here where you see uh, this is how public policy gets completely crapped on because you have, okay, so we have a problem. How will we solve the problem? Okay, here we found the best solution. Well, it's not politically popular, so we're not going to solve it. Mm-hmm. And then we're just going to run in circles over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is especially an, uh, annoying as an American because there are a lot of huge problems that Americans face that are easily solvable. Yeah. So, like, gun control is a great example. Mass shootings is a great example where we actually know the best policies that would reduce mass shootings and we will not put them in place because of politics or poverty we know we know the solutions to these problems they have been studied it is known it is known you know these are all fixable things that we have the means to fix but for one reason or another we just aren't yeah or healthcare healthcare is a great example there are numerous countries that have great healthcare and we can't model it on their system because why? Because it makes the people in power have less power, or at least they see it that way, that it evens the playing field in some way. Yeah, it's just someone who has a degree in political science and like a background in learning how policy gets made. This is something that, you know, you want to tear your hair out over these conversations. It's ass chapping. Yes. Something else that was in earlier drafts of the script was that Hoden was supposed to also get ill and then get scared and like beg Kirk for the cure. And then it was to be revealed that it was never intended for the council to get sick and die, but only the general population. That sounds about right. So that the ruling class would maintain their immortality and their power. Yeah. yeah, see, they sh- absolutely should have done that, because that kind of goes back to the thing I noticed right away, which is that it's men that are making this decision, and it's the woman that they've decided is going to be the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, the whole vibe of him and his daughter, and like, here's this problem, and blah, 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 blah. And they come out and directly say that her death is meant to be a symbol. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's going to die so young. Like, I mean, it's hard, right? Like, to not interpret this kind of stuff through the lens of, like, where you're coming from. Because mm-hmm. I honestly don't know what... I mean, obviously, reproductive rights were in the conversation in, like, progressive circles at that point. And I'm sure that the writers and producers of this episode were part of those conversations. But it really felt... And again, this is might be me interpreting it. But it really felt like... This was the episode's way of of kind of talking about how like all of these 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 situations that impact people and they couldn't they couldn't really focus it that much on women I think and I think that's a major flaw of the episode that like mm-hmm. the woman is the main victim of the situation but it's a situation created by and solved by men because mm-hmm. it couldn't be too feminist obviously at that point in time and it's kind of it's kind of uh, this situation where it feels like the, the bureaucracy 
and the ideo- the bureaucracy on the part of the Federation and the ideology on the part of the Gideon uh, has the effect of just like this woman is going to be a sacrificial lamb because everyone is too obsessed with their own worldviews to actually work on the problem in a in a way that would benefit mo- the most people. But I again, I, I'm not 100% sure that's where the episode was going in a way because overpopulation is a big topic in it. And also literally the first 25 minutes of the episode are spent with will they, won't they, will Kirk and, and the Donna get it on or not? And also, what is happening? Woo! You know, so it's like, yeah. Yeah, see, this is why I feel like this episode could have been fixed into a really amazing episode because so much of it is focused on the, like, mystery part of it. Mm-hmm. That if, and, and the, the solution of that mystery is so silly that it undercuts, like, any of the creepy feelings that you might have felt from earlier. If they had just appro- approached it in a much more straightforward fashion and articulated their themes a little bit more, I feel like this could have been a really strong episode because, as I said, like, the 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 main, well, overpopulation, obviously, but the other theme that I saw running throughout this is, like, the obstacles that you find when you're trying to solve problems. Mm-hmm. I think that's super interesting. And I thought Spock, like, Spock was great in this episode. Oh, yeah. We're just sitting there like, <sighs> why? Spock was super out of character, though. I mean, when when do you ever expect to hear Spock say a line like, the purpose of diplomacy is to prolong a crisis. <laughs> I mean, he might be right, but it's really out of character. <laughs> I don't know that it is because I feel because I was thinking about it when he said that I was like, how much of this is resentment towards Sarek? I mean, yeah, that's what I was thinking the whole time is like he's sitting there and his father is this famous diplomat mm-hmm. and he's so frustrated with diplomacy and he makes a point of reiterating that he is a scientist first and foremost and i just find that really interesting and it just made me think about some of the father-son dynamics and how fraught they are between the two of them i think it's also super interesting that the discourse spock has with hoden is specifically meant to reflect the 1967 senate foreign relations committee hearings with secretary of state rush where he was questioned about like Vietnam and the Middle East and got a lot of criticism for remaining evasive. Yeah. So they like, they went for it. And like, it's something that I think we, the four of us sitting around microphones today wouldn't see immediately. But according to what I have read, it was very apparent when the episode aired that they were, you know, attacking this, this bureaucracy. Well, yeah. And I was actually kind of impressed with, how much shade Hoden was throwing. Mm. Like, at one point... There's noise on the line. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm so sorry, you broke up. What was that? And I'm mm-hmm. like, it's it's pretty much like, I'm going through a tunnel. Which you can totally see laugh. Kirk doing, too. But Yeah. It, it did make me laugh, though. And it, it was funny to me that they didn't bother muting themselves. <laughs> And they're like, yeah. I don't know how you stand this guy. He's infuriating. And he's just sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Ari, to your point earlier about the intention of the writers, the again, these are the voyages, says that Slavin and Adams developed the idea that the suffocating population growth on Gideon stemmed from a combination of pro-life attitudes taken to the extreme and an abundance of good health. Hmm. Abundance of good health is a weird problem to have. But they were, Mm. like, coming for pro-lifers. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting because the the argument that Hoden gives to Kirk is a lot of the same stuff we hear today. Yeah. Like, we value life too much to use contraception. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Kirk's response is, yet you can kill a young girl. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that Something that's always interested me, and it goes back to this whole policy versus outcome thing I was talking about, is that if you're, the outcome that you want is, say, less abortions, if that is the outcome you want, then the pro-life movement is implementing policies that directly contradict their outcome. Mm-hmm. So if you are a person that wants less abortions, 
you want more Planned Parenthood. You want more birth control. You want all of these things that are proven to reduce the abortion rate. And yet, when it comes down to it, they're pushing stuff like abstinence-only education, which in the end ends up with more abortion. Because it doesn't work. Exactly. So it's, it's a super frustrating thing because it's like if you're if you're trying to have this outcome then you should work backwards to what are the things that we can do that will end in this outcome and they're doing it completely backwards it's like if you want to strip the moral argument out of it you're making policy mistakes basic ones so that has always been interesting to me and when i would work on campaigns when you're going on like doors and you're knocking on doors and trying to convince people to vote for your candidate or your issue or whatever whenever uh, abortion came up this was always the thing that i was like do you want less abortions or do you want more abortions because these are the policies that lower abortion rates and sometimes people are blinded by their emotion or their what they consider their moral argument and it results in something totally opposite of what they say that they want but then you run into is what they say they want really what they want or is their goal something else that they won't say say controlling female sexuality so yeah it's 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 very complicated because a lot of the time people i mean especially like when you're talking about everyday people right when you're not talking about campaigners or politicians or or ideologues when you're just talking to like regular folk a lot of people don't know why they want what they like don't don't fully know what are the the very specific granular reasons for their ideology right it's like yeah. you were saying like there's like the emotional argument of some of someone someone says i see a fetus as a baby this is murder and but then they don't actually like they haven't had the chance or the time in their lives or the disposition to like look into it or think about it further or it's not impacted their lives in particular and that's where it becomes like really really difficult i think because it's the thing that makes ideology political ideology so difficult sometimes to 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 break down is that it's political ideology is very good at disguising itself as reality instead of mm -hmm. a political interpretation of the world it's the whole mixing of opinions and saying that they are facts yeah i i i use i use a very very specific um, definition of ideology uh, when I'm talking uh, about this which is, is a very very specific one which basically is about political ideologies that attempt to direct people in a certain way and so by uh, they do that by obfuscating the real situation the, the real conditions in the real world so, like, what you're saying is, like, if you want less abortions, really what you should be doing is funding more Planned Parenthood. But this makes no sense in the, in the, in that anti-choice worldview because it's a moralistic one that is all, that in the end is about control and not about actual health and well-being. Absolutely. I, I don't really have basis for comparison, but I know in the U.S., we tend to think of the pro-life movement as a strictly religious movement. And I know it's not, but it, that is a big part of it. And the religious aspect of it, at least from like the Christian right, which I can speak to having been raised in it, is that it's not just like we want babies, like you can't have an abortion, but it's also you shouldn't be having sex. Right. Like at all. So this abstinence only form of health education, reproductive education is. Which time and again has proven to be ineffective. Right. But it's a method of control. Right. Right. And like, it's obvious if a woman gets pregnant, cis men can't get pregnant. So <laughs> it comes down on like being more restrictive to two women. And then the idea of, well, you shouldn't be having sex anyway is like, therefore, you don't need condoms or other kinds of contraception or the pill because, you know, if you're on the pill, you're clearly promiscuous and that's bad. Like, it's this very conservative, 
like Christian religion based worldview. And then as soon as the baby is born, the same worldview is like, well, you don't deserve welfare. You don't deserve government help. All about protecting the baby as soon up until it leaves your body. Right. Then it's your problem. And it's the same thing we see in the philosophy of the Gideons. Right? We, we love life so much that we can't stop having babies. But let's kill all our young people. Because we're overpopulated. Uh, yeah, there's something I was watching this with, uh, with my friend. And, um, and what we were watching, we were saying that it's the... It's the difference between an ideology that is obsessed, kind of fetishizes the idea of life yeah. versus mm-hmm. actually caring about the quality of that life, like what life actually means. And instead, it's all about this fetishized idea of like what the concept of life is and pursuing that to such an extreme that it actually massively harms people. Mm-hmm. Well said. An- another thing that I wanted to point out is that at the very beginning... One of the things that Hoden says when he is saying that, like, they can't, they won't allow people to their planet is that they consider other races to be violent. Hmm. It made me think about what they consider violence. Mm. So, like, and how, how we talk about violence and, like, kindness and mistake it. So, like, to me, him infecting his daughter and letting her die, and then infecting vast swaths of the population is violence. That, to me, is violence. But to him, the thing he... Okay, here's a great example. When Kirk goes, oh, that's what my bruise is from. It's because they took his blood. He's like, yes, we didn't know how to do it, and we, we harmed you. We're so sorry. To him, the violence was they left their bruise. To me, the violence is they took his fucking blood. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, but like they violated his consent to, you know, do what he wants with his own body. Sorry, we didn't steal your blood. Better his consent <laughs> and his autonomy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, like to me, that is super telling. Is like when you hear people talk about violence, you'll notice, like they're talking about physical violence, physical right. harm. But also think about it in terms of when we're having discussions. Well, people mis- mistake kindness with niceness, with politeness, with civility, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, like, they're like, oh, this was really uncivil comment. Or oh, you could think of it with uh, Samantha B and Ivanka. Yeah. There's an example where Samantha B said something rude or vulgar or whatever you might want to say. But Ivanka Trump is responsible for actual harm to people yeah this the second you said mistaking politeness and civility for actual kindness ivanka was the first person who came to mind exactly so like ivanka is very civil she's very polite she's very nice but she's a monster she's (laughs) a monster the policies that she's advocating for and the effect of her father's administration is of real harm so it's it's interesting to me the way they they dress up their violence as civility, and I find that really scary. I, I find that interesting because that's something that I find myself talking about because uh, I live in Scotland, which is part, part of the UK, and it's something that I find myself talking about, like the, the issue of um, political violence and the issue of like verbal, like the very class-dictated and racially-dictated ways in which political communication is allowed to happen. And so it's like, on the one hand, like here in the UK, you've had Nigel Farage, the former leader of UKIP, who can get on, uh, get on TV, and he's a despicable human being, uh, but he speaks with the proper accent. Uh, he's actually quite rude, but, you know, he, he's a white guy that speaks with a certain accent, and so he gets away with saying some things that are quite horrific. Uh, the, 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 the way that, in 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 the in Britain in particular, the uh, discourse is all there's this this obsession in political discourse with politeness and civility, because mm-hmm. there's an entire class based ideology that someone's discussing politics has to be polite and proper and speak the Queen's English and all these sorts of nonsense, and it's this thing that Britain, especially England, 
exports as its as its worldview to the rest of the world, whereas England, the UK, has been guilty for massive atrocities, but they export this with this facade of like you know cup of tea and politeness and the Queen and all this thing. You know what I mean? We see that everywhere from TV to Facebook comments. Well, I'm not going to listen to your valid points anymore because you were mean to me. And I I said this terrible thing, but I said it politely. Yeah, and yeah. the thing and the thing is if you if you live in the UK and you're not in shall we say Oxford educated circles, you will know that the way that the culture is in in working class communities in POC communities, communities where where it's not that like where like people aren't rich. Cursing here is very, very common. I would say my, in my experience is a bit more common than in the US even. So it's a very, very easy way for posh people to filter it because curse, uh, curse words are such an intrinsic part of, of the way people communicate. And you can just, you can just completely lock them out of political conversations if they, if they curse liberally, you know? And it's, it's this really, really very obvious thing. The other thing that this makes me think of is the way that Okay, so, like, people will say, I'm just expressing my opinion, but their opinion is that some a group of people deserves less rights or something like that. And then when your response is, cough, oh, well, you're, you're the one that's intolerant. You're the bad guy. <laughs> and there's actually a, a poem um, by this guy named Nizar Kabani that he's Palestinian that always makes me think. I always think of this when I'm thinking of this whole concept is that you're allowed to treat me poorly and harm me in my everyday life but because you're doing it with a smile I'm supposed to smile back mm-hmm. kind of thing and he's it, it, the phrase in the poem is if you cannot spit upon the knife that is stabbing you you are in exile and the idea is like they're they're like literally harming you <laughs> they're stabbing you with their knife but you're not supposed to spit back. Yeah. How dare you try to defend yourself? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I find that to be something that comes into mind whenever we're talking about this sort of stuff. Is like, you can't spit. If you can't spit upon the knife that is stabbing you, like that's when you know that that's true oppression. And of course, it was a Palestinian poet that managed to put that so perfectly. Yeah. So anyway, this is why I wanted to talk about this episode, actually, though, because a lot of the the actual episode is silly as hell. But some of the issues it makes me think of are so deep. Mm hmm. And that violence one really made me go, wow, let's think about that, because his version of violence and my version of violence are very different. And his version of kindness and life and my version of kindness and life are very different. Ah. We have one more issue, which is the concept of the right to die. Ah, yeah. So it's kind of where everything else was sort of related. This one is, I think, not as much. Um, But for the most part, we have Odana saying over and over again after she gets ill that this is her choice and she's not afraid. And, you know, Kirk wants to provide medical care. And he's, he's even asking her, if you would just allow me to treat you. And then she eventually loses consciousness. And that's when they just take her back to the Enterprise without her consent to cure her. Yeah. They pretty much violate her DNR. Yeah, and she's happy about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's that, <laughs> there's that scene at the end where she's like, oh, you know, how can you, how can you, like, look at me? You should be disgusted by me because I tricked you. And Kirk says something like, oh, well, you know, considering that you tricked me, the least you, you should let me do is, like, look at you. And yeah. <laughs> when we were watching that with my friend, my friend is, is, is a, a guy, is this guy, you know, and, and we both immediately, like, we were just both like, ew, oh, gross. <laughs> and then he offers his arm and she's really charmed and I'm like, no, oh, dump him. You can do better. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's that's one of those things, you know, that happens a lot. I mean, it even happens with Next Gen and other things that it's like you're watching it and there's something really progressive going on and a really interesting conversation and then the show reminds you of when it was made. 
and mm-hmm. by whom. <laughs> it's like, yep. okay. But I mean, the, the right to die is getting to be a bigger and bigger issue. Um, I'm reminded of the Terry Pratchett documentary that he made before he passed called Choosing to Die. Really quick, in case that name is not familiar, Terry Pratchett uh, was a fantasy author. He wrote the Discworld series and was uh, diagnosed several years ago, probably about 10 years ago, with um, a form of Alzheimer's that was getting progressively worse. And from that time, he started looking into basically euthanasia. Like he didn't want to live if he couldn't, if his brain didn't function the way he wanted it to. And that was, you know, illegal in the UK. It was illegal in other places in Europe. And he became a real advocate for this right to die movement. And um, I highly recommend the documentary. It is, even if you're, you don't necessarily agree with it, it's just very interesting, I think, to watch and get these opinions because it's something that's sort of really difficult to wrap your head around in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's very complicated on that side of things because I feel some of the bits that are like forgotten in the discourse are like uh, on those discussions are like the perspectives of disabled people a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time it's disabled people who this exclusively affects, yes? Yeah, so so it's it's complicated. It's It's one of those things where I'm like not yeah where i just feel that it's it's a very new it's a very nuanced kind of argument absolutely and that's i i think why it has to be why why i'm not arguing anything that the, yeah no no i just saying like that discussion is best in my opinion for me to listen to by people who who have a stake in it if that makes sense <laughs> but i mean that yeah that was the the right to die issue was the last thing i had on my list and um it sort of just falls in line with what Trek, especially TOS, does all the time of, well, you think you know what's best for you, but really, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy know what's best for you. Mm. <laughs> Charming. I also want to point out that this is one of the patented, well, we saved the girl. Bye! <laughs> and it, yeah! That I absolutely think are so funny from the original series where they're like, it's everything was terrible. Nothing was resolved. And then it's like that tinkly music and they're like on the bridge and they're like, well, that was fun. Let's <laughs> leave now. We out. They save the girl, but they're still sending her home to infect everyone else. Yeah, I know. But the pretty it's... girl's going to live. <laughs> oh, TOS. Such a gem. Seriously, though, I really did like this episode much more on the rewatch than I did on the first one, um, just because it made me think about some cool stuff and took me into some interesting places, which is a good thing that I enjoy about Trek. But yeah, some of the decision making in this episode is questionable at best. (laughs) Mm, To say the least. (laughs) To say the least. Oh, my God. It also has, I mean... It also, the thing that I get every time I watch an original series episode, even like the really like well-regarded ones, there's always a very bizarre creative choice in a original <laughs> series episode. Uh, the one for this episode that I, it, it lasts like five seconds and I completely foc- hyper-focused on was when they first, um, when they first open communications with the Gideon after Kirk has been beamed away and when they first get them, the you see, and see the Gideon Council Chamber on the screen, and they are like behind this like sort of like crosshatch kind of fence, like because basically the camera is from like behind that fence, and then the shot changes, and then when they're back to the Gideon, it's actually like a close up, and I'm like, do they have a camera that was between those fences that just like suit it? Like what? There's lots of zooming when it comes to like security camera uh like the the amount of footage type shots that actually are like framed and zoom and stuff is pretty funny when you watch TOS. There are a lot of odd shots especially in this episode. There's I mean, a lot we, of odd things in this episode. We see Kirk from below through a glass table. I think one of the shots of the bridge is shot from like under the op station. <laughs> I'm like, why? Maybe to add to the creepiness factor? 
Maybe to tell us that Kirk is someone we need to look up to. Uh. <laughs> it's weird. Like that that one about the view screen about like when they they turn it on and you're literally seeing them like behind the fence that is really close to whatever the point of view camera is and I'm like but but why but though? Why? <laughs> but, why? <laughs> but why? But why? Why though? But why? Oh god. But yeah, yeah, no, and, and that bit at the end where the, where him and and Hoden are talking, and it's shot from below the glass table, and I was like, "What? Why is this shot in this way?" It was really puzzling. So we did have one comment on our, I think it was Twitter feed about this episode that was asking about the title. I could not find anything specific about that, like why this was the choice, why they named this planet Gideon. I can tell you what I did find is that Gideon is the Hebrew word for destroyer or mighty warrior. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the mark of Gideon is like, you have been chosen to die? Or destroy. Yeah. Either way. Gideon is a biblical character? Yes. He he destroyed the statue of Baal. He freed the Israelites and led them away from worshipping false gods. But he turned down the opportunity to be the king of the Israelites. Well, nothing good happens to kings of the Israelites, let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, true. But if you want to read more about Gideon, his story is in Judges, <laughs> in the book of Judges, so sure. But yeah, I, I just wanted to say that I went and tried to find an answer, and that's the best I found. So does anybody else have any closing thoughts on the Mark of Gideon? Anything we didn't touch on or anything you would like to reiterate? Well, I did see that in our notes we've got a quote from the writer of Stanley Adams uh, talking about this as a beehive society and I'm only just now getting, oh, that's why they got all those weird octagons in their decor and outfits. Over their turtlenecks? (laughs) Octagon turtlenecks! (laughs) It's eight sides of awesome! (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did like the. I did like the polygon. The polygon jumpers, pretty good. <laughs> good solid fashion choices. I was very. Um, every time you saw a close-up shot of Hoden, I was like impressed by the eyebrow game. It's like, <laughs> yeah. wow. I noticed that he looked like Brad Dourif wearing ridiculous facial hair makeup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess we didn't talk a, a, a lot about the, the pattern of like Spock dealing with bureaucracy, and it was it was just weird. Which feels like an odd choice to have Spock be the person going up against bureaucracy. Yeah, usually it's McCoy. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and McCoy is kind of like sitting there, like, and every basically everything that he says, Spock is like, "Oh yeah, totally." <laughs> you know, <laughs> Spock is like, "Oh yeah, no, but you know, we, you can't." And at one point, like McCoy's like, "What are we gonna do?" And Spock is like, "Well, you know, you gotta gotta have hope, you know." And I was like, "What? What is? What is happening?" That frustration line about like prolonging a crisis to me is much more of a McCoy line than a Spock line. Maybe the yeah. scripts were like delivered wrong, and then by the time they were <laughs> recording it, they were like, "Will somebody tell the Forest and Leonard?" Or <laughs> no, and it's just, just, let, yeah, just let them do it. it out. Let them do it. They're great. They're good at what they do. They're great. <laughs> All right, so I think that just about does it for us this episode. Um, Ari, where can people find you on the internet? So you can find me on primarily on Twitter. It's at AB underscore Silvera, where you will find me tweeting about also things like Irish feminism and uh, and that political campaign that just ended about repealing the Eighth Amendment uh, and trans feminism, as well as, you know, Kamen Rider. <laughs> you know, it's a very, it's a very varied kind of Twitter. And uh, Steven Universe. And Steven Universe, yes. which I wrote I wrote my master's thesis on. What? That's amazing. Yeah, it was about the translation of songs in the Latin American version. Yeah, and they also, and I'm also like on Facebook, if you look for A.B. Silvera, a.k.a. Mina, that is like a, my Facebook like page, uh, which I need to update more. And more importantly, Angel 2 Podcast, you can find us on Twitter at, at Angel2Pod, that's for Angel 2 podcast awesome and andy you can find me on twitter at first time track where i'm still slowly but surely live tweeting <laughs> my way through uh star trek i'm on voyager and ds9 right now grace you can find me on twitter at bone crusher jank and in a crowd of dudes and turtlenecks just constantly bumping into each other <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry excuse me sorry 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 sorry, sorry. just trying to, sorry sorry 
And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. You can also find Women at Warp on Twitter at Women at Warp, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Women at Warp, now on Instagram at Women at Warp, online at Women at Warp.com. And if you'd like to reach us by email, you can do so at crew at Women at Warp.com. And finally, for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, you can visit podcasts with an S dot Roddenberry.com for information from the Trek Files, Mission Log, and Priority One podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Damn it, <laughs>